millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to elders past and present. This podcast episode is largely about addiction, and it also touches on suicide, mental illness and sexual assault, so listener discretion is advised. Just before we start, a reminder about the first Forgotten Australia book club episode. I'll be interviewing Peter Doyle about his recent non-fiction release, Suburban Noir, which is a cracking portrait of crime and punishment in Sydney in the 1950s and 1960s. We'll also be talking about Peter's other books, the non-fiction Crooks Like Us and City of Shadows, and his four period crime novels, The Devil's Jump, Amaze Your Friends, Get Rich Quick, and The Big Whatever. There's a lot to talk about, and Peter would love to hear your questions about his work. So, if you'd like me to read them to him in the episode, send them as an email to ForgottenAustraliaPodcast at gmail.com. But you can also record your question in a free audio file directly from your computer by going to speakpipe.com forward slash Forgotten Australia. Believe me, it's super easy. I've put the email address and that link into the show notes. So get your questions to me by the 27th of April and you'll hear them in the very first Forgotten Australia book club episode. Okay, on with the show. It's the morning of Wednesday the 7th of October 1891 and Lady Munro is about to appear in South Australia's Supreme Court at the trial of the two men accused of indecently assaulting her in an empty Adelaide house six weeks ago. One is William Valency. This is the larrikin Constable Stroud saw leaving the scene of the crime. He's actually stood trial previously on another rape charge and been acquitted. 
His luck holds again today because just before the rising of the court, the Crown drops the charge. Lady Munro was unable to identify him, so there's not enough evidence to secure a conviction. That leaves 22-year-old David Smith. This is the larrikin nabbed by the copper in a darkened room while he was in the act of trying to rape Lady Munro. Lady Munro did identify him at the hospital and then at the committal hearing. So he is to stand trial. Lady Munro is called as the first witness. She takes the stand, swears to tell the truth, so help her God. So help her God, the truth is, she can't remember anything about the night of the attack. As for the accused, she says she's never seen him before in her life. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the third and final instalment in the Forgotten Australia episode, The Notorious Lady Munro. On Wednesday the 7th of October 1891, Lady Munro told the South Australian Supreme Court she couldn't remember the night of the 22nd of August or the early hours of the 23rd. She had only the haziest recollection of the police court trial in which she'd sparred so memorably with Charles Kingston QC, who was again this day representing David Smith. Lady Munro did tell His Honour she remembered some of the intervening period, being in jail and in hospital. Problem was, when she'd dried out, her memory had also evaporated. Or had it? With the Crown case on the verge of collapse, Prosecutor Mr J M Stewart called colonial surgeon Dr Patterson to try to get to the bottom of whether Lady Munro actually couldn't remember or whether she was just claiming to have forgotten. Dr Patterson said he'd been attending her for, quote, that form of mental aberration caused through excessive drinking. The medico told the court that, in some cases, a patient so afflicted would forget all recent events, even while he or she would still be able to recall things that had happened further in the past. Lady Munro had told Dr. Patterson that she had no recollection at all of the attack. She'd also told him of other memory lapses she'd suffered through the years. She'd even once lost her £50 allowance. Dr. Patterson believed that Lady Munro was telling the truth and he said there was a strong chance she'd never be able to detail her evidence. His Honour asked Lady Munro again if she was able to testify. She said she wasn't going to be able to remember. The Crown solicitor cited a precedent that would allow Lady Munro to inspect the depositions she had already made and signed about the attack. But C.C. Kingston's objection to this memory-jogging technique was sustained. The judge adjourned overnight so he could consider this strange situation and consult with the acting Chief Justice. The bulletin gave insight into what the psychology of the day said about such cases. Quote, A scientific enthusiast would have made Lady Munro as drunk as she was on the night of the alleged outrage and on a similar kind of tipple, brought her brain, in fact, to a condition duplicatory of its state at the time and she would have gabbled all about everything or else hypnotised her and then tested her memory. Except, of course, quote, a judge couldn't very well punish men on a drunken or hypnotised lady's evidence. When court resumed the following day, the Crown solicitor told His Honour that he didn't want to continue with the case, but he felt duty-bound to. Defence counsel C.C. Kingston said he'd rather not cross-examine Mrs. Munro under the circumstances. The judge said he sympathised with both men, but the acting Chief Justice had said the trial must go on. 
Lady Munro was placed in the witness box and Mr Stewart quizzed her about what she could remember of her time in South Australia. She said that while she'd been imprisoned several times for drunkenness, she was a chaste woman and she wasn't in the habit of parading in the streets. She said she'd never been in an asylum, but she had been in inebriate retreats in England and Australia. Lady Munro remembered staying at the Launceston Hotel in Adelaide, but said she'd not been there with a man, but had been taken there because she was ill. She also remembered a time she was on trial in the police court as a habitual drunkard. Lady Munro recalled a constable saying when he arrested her, she'd thrown herself down in Hindley Street and caused a crowd to collect. She said she knew people said she often pulled men about on Hindley Street at night time. But turning to his honour, Lady Munro assured him she did not condescend to associate with the denizens of Hindley Street because they were, quote, very inferior people. Warming to this theme, she said she detested larrikins and common folk. Nevertheless, when she had money, she would always buy drinks for them. In the witness box, Lady Munro lost her composure and sobbed. Recovering, she said she knew people told her she did terrible things when under the influence. Quote, that she asked men to button her boots and had, on one occasion, thrown herself into the water. Lady Munro went on to say she received money from her friends in England and they were the ones who'd sent her out to Australia. Her allowance came quarterly, and the most recent one had arrived just last month when she was in jail. Lady Munro testified she was a married woman, but separated from her husband on a mutual understanding. As we heard in parts 1 and 2, this was Captain John Watson Munro, resident of Brisbane, very much married to another woman, having, as far as the record allows, never been Lady Munro's husband, though it's likely they were involved out of wedlock in the mid-1870s. The Crown called a couple of people who'd encountered Lady Munro in Adelaide. One was a woman named Mary Ann Phillips. The Crown solicitor asked Lady Munro if she knew her. She said she recollected her face, but she saw so many people all over the world, it wasn't possible to remember everyone. The Crown solicitor then called a Mr Maloney, who the Bunyip newspaper described as a, quote, young fellow whose ears stood out from his head like the handles of a colander. The Crown solicitor asked Lady Munro, do you recognise him? As the Bunyip reported, her ladyship scanned the unfortunate object of inspection with cool disdain and said, never in my life, I should remember those ears anywhere. The man turned red. Lady Munro turned to the judge and said, a thorough larrikin type of countenance, your honour. This was as much as Lady Munro could say on her own behalf. But of course, this criminal case didn't hinge on her entirely. Constable Stroud was called to give his evidence. He'd been alerted to the attack by Lady Munro's cries for help coming from the darkened house. She'd been calling, Murder! Mercy! And Leave me alone, you villains! As far as Constable Stroud was concerned, there was no question she was in the house against her will. Constable Stroud had grabbed the accused, David Smith, in the darkened house while he was in the process of attacking Lady Munro. Smith had struggled, resisted, and only been arrested with great effort. Lady Munro had subsequently identified David Smith as the man who'd attacked her after she was carried into the house by him and three other men. That closed the Crown's case. 
David Smith's defence barrister, C.C. Kingston, didn't try to deny that his client had been in the house with Lady Munro. What he tried to do was recast the event in the minds of the jurymen. He brought in character witnesses for the accused. A man named Martin Considine said he'd known David Smith for nine years and that the lad was of good character. Member of Parliament Mr Lawrence Grayson told the court he'd employed the accused for nine months at his establishment, the Union Engineering Company, and quote, his conduct was all that could be desired. C.C. Kingston knew he didn't have to go too hard on Lady Munro. To do so might backfire. But he called a constable Williams who walked the Hindley Street beat from 10pm to 6am. This was the officer who'd arrested her when she'd made the scene. The copper told the court he'd seen Lady Munro on the streets often at all hours. On the night he arrested her, she'd been drunk and they'd been walking to the watch house when she threw herself on the footpath outside the Theatre Royal. Another time, he'd cautioned her for assaulting an old man near the Coffee Palace. Then, on another occasion, Constable Williams testified, Lady Munro had invited him to come and have a drink with her. And of course, he'd refused. On hearing this, the court cracked up. Next, C.C. Kingston recalled Mary Ann Phillips. Not that the barrister announced it to the court, but this woman operated a disorderly house. This would have been quite clear to the jury when Mary Ann Phillips testified that Lady Munro had often boarded at her place, quote, with gentlemen, taking a room as man and wife. The witness couldn't say who these men were, but she said one had looked like a sailor. C.C. Kingston's intimation, Lady Munro was a drunken lady of the night. That closed the case for the defence. The closing arguments were recorded as being lengthy. C.C. Kingston spoke for 80 minutes. He said that David Smith was a fine young man who'd made the mistake of going off with a poor drunken woman who'd offered to sell herself to him. For whatever reason, possibly alcoholic delirium, she'd cried out and the constable had come and it had all been a terrible misunderstanding inside that darkened house. Crown Prosecutor Mr Stewart said that whatever Lady Munro's transgressions, and despite her subsequent loss of memory, it was perfectly clear from Constable Stroud's evidence what had happened, and this included what Lady Munro had said to him in the immediate aftermath. If she'd been inside the house willingly, then why cry bloody murder? The jury's deliberation took three hours. The verdict... On the charge of having indecently assaulted Elizabeth Munro, David Smith was guilty. But guilty with a strong recommendation from the jury to mercy because he was young and because of Lady Munro's, quote, general depravity. In other words, let's not ruin the life of a young man because the victim was asking for it. C.C. Kingston asked the judge to have his client dealt with under the First Offenders Act. This would set him free on a bond. But his honour said no. He sentenced David Smith to 15 months with hard labour. This was perhaps nine months less than expected. The judge said the comparatively light sentence was for the reasons recommended by the jury. The Bunyip newspaper didn't have a problem with this seeming leniency. It was more affronted that the other Adelaide papers had, quote, gushed over this unfortunate victim of the demon drink during the trial. 
While the bunyip allowed that Lady Munro had a fine tall figure and a soft musical voice and that she'd been handsome if not beautiful back in the day, quote, her face is hard enough now to drive tin tacks in and the watery eyes have a defiant look. The bunyip declared it bosh that she showed no outward signs of dissipation. Quote, her countenance spells drink unmistakably and it is a sad pity there is not power to send her to the inebriate retreat and attempt her cure. The columnist said some believed her to be the sister of Lady Mordaunt, that it was popularly supposed she got a thousand pounds a year and everyone lamented how she wasted this great sum of money. The Bunyip's writer was doing what so many already had. He was claiming the high moral ground to better revel in all of her low moral particulars. Quote, but enough of this painful wreck upon the brandy bottle, whose favourite tipple, by the by, when she has funds, is champagne and brandy in the public bar. We do not want Adelaide to be a dumping ground for moral wrecks. Maybe not, but Lady Munro wasn't going anywhere for the time being. She continued in Adelaide with the carousing and the court appearances the fines and the stints in stir. Over the past decade, writers, like the one from the Bunyip, had, whether they wanted to or not, turned Lady Munro into a popular character. While there would have been a lot of people who'd encountered her in person, most Australians would only have known about her from the printed page. But such notoriety was enough for her to become a punchline for stage comedians and pantomime performers. Lady Munro would also have featured in a lot of barroom banter. Slivers of such satire can still be found here and there. The Bird of Freedom magazine in January 1892 printed a little three-act comedy about an Irish constable. Written to reflect thick Irish accents, which I'm not going to attempt, the ending had this copper bestowing gifts on his wife that he'd stolen from crooks. The ending has him promising his missus, they tell me Lady Munro has a neat new watch. Let us hope that heaven will drive her onto my beat when she next goes on the batter. Then, darling, you won't want for the time of day. When the same newspaper compiled a comic dictionary of street slang in August 1892, it listed terms like bally, which was an acceptable alternative to bloody, and donor, which was synonymous then with bloke. Then there was the derogatory haybag. Definition, quote, a woman. See Lady Munro. Melbourne's Punch magazine, when casting a satirical eye over the contentious issue of whether hay bags should get the vote, reviewed the argument that women were in every way man's intellectual equal from the top to the bottom of the scale. The upper place, it said, was occupied by George Eliot, and the very lowest by Lady Munro. Meanwhile, Perth's Daily News reported that the verses Oh dear, raggedy ho, she's happy and joyful, is Lady Munro. Quote, Never fail to raise a laugh in the music halls of Melbourne and Sydney by the alleged humorists. Lady Munro was the gift that kept on giving. She was so well known, she only had to show up to cause a comic ruckus. On the 7th of April 1892, she appeared at a politician's already rowdy campaign event at Temperance Hall in Melbourne. The Age reported, Lady Munro, a well-known female character, dressed in white, stalked up the hall, an apparition which convulsed the meeting. She was handed a chair in the front row amid uproarious laughter, and the candidate resumed his speech. Lady Munro made plenty of interjections, many of which were inaudible beneath the crowd noise. 
But when the candidate waffled on about reducing official salaries, she called out, Oh damn the governor's salary, let's have something lively. Lady Munro stood to address the meeting, but she was drowned out. Quote, Her observations generally, as far as they could be heard, seemed to indicate that she was annoyed at the kind of questions and wanted attention given to more important political problems. How did the men react to a woman trying to have a say on such matters? Well, according to the age, they yelled things like, Sit down, shut up you old fool, and take her out for a walk, old man. One boy called out, Be careful Jack the Ripper doesn't get you. Now this was a particularly sinister thing to say right then. Melbourne was that very week abuzz about Frederick Bailey Deeming, who'd murdered a woman in Andrew Street in the southeastern suburb of Windsor and buried her body beneath a hearthstone in one of the bedrooms. Before his crime was discovered, he'd taken off for Western Australia, where he'd been caught by detectives. One of the police heroes in this case was none other than Detective William Considine, making up for his Mother Munro mistake back in 1884, which we heard about in Part 1, and which led to Lady Munro initially becoming famous around all the Australian colonies. In the past week, Deeming had been extradited, and he was now in Melbourne jail awaiting his trial. But news from London had revealed he'd also killed his wife and four children back in England. This had contributed to speculation that still exists to this day that Deeming was Jack the Ripper. But Lady Munro had nothing to fear from him. A few weeks after the rowdy election meeting, Deeming was tried, convicted and sentenced to death. In mid-May, while he was awaiting his date with the hangman, Lady Munro took herself to see the acrobats and bronco riders of Fitzgerald Circus in Melbourne. Of course, Lady Munro wanted in on the act, or even to command the performance. Sadly, circus master Dan Fitzgerald had to disappoint her. The Chronicle South Yarra Gazette ran an amused little item about her circus attendance. And right beneath the article, we see the mention of another Melbourne attraction at this time. Quote, Butcher Deeming's Potting Down Depot at 57 Andrew Street is now open to the public at popular prices. One shilling every day bar Tuesday, which is specially reserved for society folks, the privilege of which is two shillings. The tone was mocking, but this murder scene tourism was all too real. Despite being one of the society folks, Lady Munro would not have approved at all of this ghastly attraction. But had she been able to see far into the future, she might very well have had a sympathetic opinion of B. Miles. Anticipating Australia's most celebrated female eccentric by more than half a century, Lady Munro proved a terror to taxi cabmen. In June 1892, she stiffed an Adelaide driver of 30 shillings, this enormous fare suggesting she'd hired him and his horses for some sort of epic journey. It was around this time that the Bulletin had another crack at trying to positively identify Lady Munro. Quote, She is a cousin, not a sister, of Lady Mordaunt and of the Dowager Countess of Dudley. The present Captain Munro was not her first husband, for she was originally married to his brother, also a Captain Munro, who died in India. As we heard in parts 1 and 2, I've not been able to find any evidence to substantiate any of that. Also in 1892, some well-intentioned reformers sent Lady Munro back to London. Whoever her people were there, they quickly bounced her back to the colonies. 
Newspapers reported her steamship journeys in both directions had been interrupted by unscheduled stopovers in Ceylon and Italy respectively when exasperated captains put her ashore for her bad boozy behaviour. Lady Munro bobbed up in Melbourne by the end of February 1893, causing a scene when she tried to bust her way into a Wesleyan church service on consecutive nights. She was fined 20 shillings, in lieu of which she'd do seven days. The Launceston Examiner's Melbourne correspondent reckoned this was perhaps the 100th time she'd received this punishment. That was, of course, only counting that city. Four months later, in June 1893, a Broadford courier writer stopped into a hotel for a counter meal. Quote, There I saw seated the notorious Lady Munro, looking remarkably well after her eventful career. This man reckoned he'd last seen her many, many years ago when she was just becoming infamous. It had been late one night at a coffee stall where she'd had no coin to pay but had been given what she wanted after she touched the proprietor's heart by reciting a few verses of Lord Tennyson's poem Enoch Arden. Now, in the restaurant, the Broadford courier man observed, a customer got up from his table, crossed to Lady Munro's and sat down to help himself to some of her bread. Quote, In an instant, a blow from her hand laid the man on the floor, and the establishment rattled with the fireworks of her voice. A Moncrief had been offended. That was rough. She is a remarkable woman, this Lady Munro. Lady Munro gave the comedians more literal fireworks a month later in Melbourne when she set fire to her watch house cell. South Australia's Bunyip newspaper sneering, she had, quote, introduced some variation in her usual course of performances. Four months later, she renewed her acquaintance with the Sydney police when she stiffed another cabbie of his fare and then landed in court three times in a week for drunkenness. On the third time, she pleaded, I was drunk, but I have not been here for five years. Actually, it was two. The magistrate asked, How many times have you been here altogether? The police sergeant piped up that it was more than 100 times. The magistrate said to Lady Munro, You hear that? During the last 10 years, you have been here over a 100 times. In fact, you beat the record out and out of all the women who come here. We will have to proceed against you under the Vagrant Act. Lady Munro said, Oh, but I have my income. You cannot do that. She was right about that. He gave her a 40 shilling fine, in default of which she'd spend a week in jail. Lady Munro, by the accounts of 1893, had been in court at least 100 times in Melbourne and another 100 times in Sydney. When she was given a week in Maitland Jail at this time, the Newcastle Morning Herald said, quote, It was shown that the convictions against her are almost innumerable. Taking into account other court appearances and convictions in South Australia, it's reasonable to say she'd hit the 300 mark by this time. B. Miles would claim that many and it was probably an exaggeration for her entire career in Sydney. But Lady Munro wasn't close to done yet. Not by a long shot. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Lady Munro's never-ending tour took her north to court appearances in Inverell and then Brisbane before she swanned back into Sydney. In November 1894, the Australasian reported another cracker in her comic repertoire. She'd been on a, quote, protracted tear and, falling into the hands of the police, was being escorted, as usual, to a Black Maria van. As the door was being opened, she threw her head back in true patrician manner and, looking at the driver through imaginary pince-nez, instructed, Home, John. It was all fun and games, except for the court appearances. Maitland, Newcastle, Sydney, across the ditch to Dunedin, before washing back to Sydney and going into an inebriate home where they intended to slowly wean her off alcohol. As Table Talk in Melbourne commented, With care and moderation, the dipsomaniacal tendency may be cured in time. The doctors are sanguine of success. They shouldn't have been. Lady Munro went back to Dunedin, racked up another six convictions, and in July 1896 got three months with hard labour. Then, back across the Tasman to Newcastle, where, in October, she was before the court three mornings in a row. Her old nemesis, now Senior Sergeant James McVane, gave evidence she'd been drunk. Lady Munro told the old story that she'd been trying to get the steamer to Sydney, and it was only the police who'd stopped her from doing so. She got the usual punishment, but somehow, after all of this, she could still manage to be indignant. Quote, One pound or seven days? I think that's hardly fair. I have only been here twice in 18 months, and I think you ought to draw the line. The weary magistrate replied, It would be a good job if you did not come here for 18 years. Newcastle would not be rid of her soon. Not before more escapades. Passed out on the footpath, jumping into ladies' carriages, spending the boat fare given to her by charitable people again and again on the quicker escape from town to be found at the bottom of a bottle. February 1897, Melbourne. Lady Munro was fined five shillings. The Bulletin, looking ahead to a time of national unity, commented that she was a, quote, valuable source of revenue wherever she is, and the Bulletin opines that, in the event of federation, she will have to be located at the federal capital to prevent interprovincial jealousies. While Melbourne's Punch lamented her return to the city's courts, it said it was Lady Munro's mission, quote, to afford musical hall artists and pantomime stars with material for topical and local allusions. A comedian only had to mention her from the stage for the audience to be in stitches. Punch offered its own sample of the sort of jokes they loved. It was along the lines of, Lady Munro holds the Australian record for convictions for drunkenness but for this, she doesn't get the credit she deserves, especially from publicans. The Wits had more to work with in April 1898 when cable news from London reached Melbourne to say that the Oxford 8 rowing team had beaten Cambridge. Lady Munro, claiming she had a junior relative in the winning team, attached streamers in the yellow and blue of their colours and paraded through Melbourne in drunken ecstasy. Having thus amused Melbourne, Lady Munro headed north by train, making it as far as Wangaratta, where she was arrested at the station for drunkenness and held before she continued on to Albury, where she was arrested again. Finally, she made it to Sydney, for three turns in court in as many days. On the third appearance, she actually asked to be put in jail for one month because she said she couldn't keep sober and she'd die if she kept drinking. 
This sort of plea seemed to align with the occasional reports, particularly in the bulletin, that said Lady Munro's health was failing, that she was so weak she could barely even get drunk anymore. But these reports of her infirmity were greatly exaggerated. Writers in the habit of underestimating her and predicting her imminent demise. While on this occasion Lady Munro was probably feeling pretty rough, she also knew it was only mid-July. She had another six weeks until her allowance arrived, and she knew it would be a hard month and a half. In any event, the magistrate said he could only give her one week in jail based on the charge against her. He said it was a shame there wasn't a special law to allow him to give her more time. There was court appearance after court appearance. At the end of August, under the headline, Back Again, the Australian Star reported, quote, The familiar figure of her ladyship came gracefully forward. She greeted the bench with a dignified bow and then surveyed the court officials in a most superior sort of way. Charged with being drunk and disorderly in George Street, the fair one admitted the soft impeachment of having imbibed to an undue extent, but indignantly denied having misconducted herself. How do you plead? demanded Sergeant Spence. She replied, well, I am guilty. On and on. There was much amusement when a new magistrate asked the court clerks of Lady Munro, is she known? And there was much head-shaking when another magistrate said he'd been dealing with her for 15 years now. Sydney, Albury, Melbourne, Dunedin, Melbourne, Sydney, Newcastle, Sydney. There were more charitable people putting her into care. There were more newspapers cautiously doubting her ancestry. And there were more amusing antics that punctured pomposity such as the time a well-to-do Sydney lady was delivered to David Jones & Co. in a fine carriage drawn by two fine horses. This woman went inside to do some shopping, leaving, as the Newcastle Herald put it, quote, the coachman on the box with the orthodox stiffness of neck and the footman standing at the open door in expectancy of his mistress. It was then that Lady Munro struck, quote, all at once a disreputable-looking woman rushed up to the carriage, leapt in, and sinking back on the cushions, exclaimed, This reminds me of old times. Home, coachman, home. The scandalised footman had no idea what to do, as a delighted Sydney crowd gathered. The Newcastle Herald, quote, Arguments and threats were alike in vain. The footman waved his arms about him and called for the police. The coachman, because of the crowd, had all his work to keep his horses quiet. Amid all of this clamour, Lady Munro would not budge an inch. The paper continued. At last, when the surging people had laughed themselves hoarse, and the footman was crimson with his exertions, and as much unlike a well-trained footman could be, a stalwart police officer arrived on the scene and bundled my lady onto the pavement unceremoniously and with some violence. Lady Munro was carted off, and comedians everywhere had more material. That extended from Sydney, where Truth wrote her into a dryish article about liquor duties, right to Perth, where an actor in the hit play Trilby improvised a line about Lady Munro that left the audience howling with laughter. Men everywhere, from the Janolan Caves right across to Kalgoorlie, came to fancy dress parties dressed as Lady Munro. Of course, as Federation drew closer, the question of where she would be was raised. It seemed to be answered in Melbourne City Court in mid-December 1900, where, as the Melbourne Herald reported, she was dressed in the latest fashions, 
walking around in queenly style and waving her hand deprecatingly towards the magistrate when she drawled, I am going to sit in air today. That was actually how the paper styled it. The magistrate told Lady Munro that might be so, but she wouldn't be going anywhere until she paid a 10 shilling fine. Quote, the prisoner, with elevated eyebrows and an indescribable air of superiority, said to the orderly, Take ten shillings. It was as though she was offering a servant some sort of gratuity out of her generosity, rather than paying a fine for breaking the law. Before leaving the court, Lady Munro turned to the bench and, with great politeness, said, Thank you, Mr. Magistrate. Up in Sydney, some wags actually put Lady Munro's name into the New South Wales Governor's Visitor's Book, and that led to a real invitation to Federation celebrations being sent to the address they had listed. Having foreseen this possibility, the practical jokers responded, as Punch said, quote, apologising for Lady Munro's inability to accept the invitation. Why? Because she was already elsewhere detained as a guest of Her Majesty. The bulletin noted that Sydney was to have the honour of Lady Munro's company during Commonwealth Week. Truth admitted she was a threat to the smooth running of celebrations, but the newspaper quite even-handedly noted, if her ladyship does get on the rampage here, she won't be the only drunk. And she gets drunk at her own expense, which is more than can be said of some. It's not known whether Lady Munro got to Sydney. If she did, a court appearance wasn't recorded but she did score at least one headline on the first day of our nationhood. The Tuesday 1st of January 1901 edition of the Gympie Times and Mary River Mining Gazette reprinted that recent Melbourne Herald article about her under the headline, A Noted Woman Drunkard. February 1901, Melbourne. Lady Munro got into a tussle with another city eccentric, the fake medico Dr Nicholson with her claiming that their argument arose because he wanted her to make him a duke, but she had to refuse because she didn't have her sword handy. After this, though, Lady Munro didn't trouble the Australian newspapers for a whole year. But in February 1902, she was back in court in Sydney. She said she'd been in England for about six months until about six months ago. Quote, I have been keeping very quiet lately and behaving myself. I'm very sorry. The magistrate gave her a 10 shilling fine and said he wished that she'd go back into an inebriate home as she had once before for him. You go off and keep quiet, he said. What is the use of you going on with this foolery? But Lady Munro wasn't about to stop, because she couldn't. A month later in Melbourne, the age recorded what it estimated was her 375th charge of drunkenness. Three months later, back in Sydney in June 1903, Sir George Dibbs, who'd been New South Wales Premier three times, proved he was no man of the people when he strolled along King Street with an ex-MLA named Mr W.S. Target. A lady came up to Sir George and took him aside, telling him her tale of woe. The gallant gent landed a sympathetic ear. As the Australian Star reported, quote, Sir George became the centre of observation for a group of grinning citizens, including a policeman with an expansive smile. When the lady had finished her story, Sir George rejoined his friend. That poor woman, he said, was hoping for assistance with passage to England. The clearly far more worldly Mr Target replied, Bless my soul, 
Don't you know who that is? Sir George Dibbs didn't. His friend laughed. Well, you're the only man in King Street at the present moment that doesn't know her. That's Lady Munro. It's hard to understand how Sir George Dibbs didn't know. Lady Munro had been known in Sydney since 1878. 25 years, and she was still going, and going strong. January 1905, Newcastle. A magistrate banned all licensed victuallers from supplying Lady Munro for a period of 12 months. She wasn't happy about it at all. So off she went to Melbourne, then back to Sydney, where in August 1905, she fronted court in a smart tailor-made grey costume, a lady's grey Hornberg hat worn with a cock's feather and a veil. Calling herself Irene Munro, as she occasionally did, she was asked if she needed time to pay her five shilling fine. Lady Munro replied, I have the money on me, thank you. She was back the next day. Same outfit, same charge, same fine. On the promise she would leave Sydney at once. Lady Munro did, popping up in Adelaide. There, the critic newspaper said that her aristocratic claims were actually true. By the time this was in print, though, Lady Munro had already gone back to Sydney and gotten into trouble on George Street and gotten herself in court. The publication The Newsletter used that worn-out headline, Lady Munro again, and noted, quote, Her condition aroused the sympathy and wonder, sympathy for such a case of sadness, and wonder at the endurance of the woman. The newsletter's writer had seen her on the tram in Sydney, and she'd been at once gentle and motherly with a little girl sitting to one side of her, while being rollicking and funny with a pompous dandy seated on the other side. The paper said, quote, Her bearing, nevertheless, was ladylike. When she opened her purse to pay the fare, it was seen to be full of sovereigns, which was, no doubt, the usual allowance she draws from some estate in which she is known to have an interest. The newsletter's writer had watched her get off the tram near King Street and disappear into a hotel, saying she'd likely since been run in for being intoxicated and insensible. But this scribe was nothing if not admiring. Quote, Lady Munro is doubtless one of the most remarkable women alive, seeing that even now she preserves the outline of a beautiful appearance, notwithstanding the terrible life she has gone through, drunk or in jail every other week for over 25 years. Her real character is seen in the fact that drunk or sober, she preserves a most ladylike bearing and has never been known to use foul or offensive language. Her nature seems impossible of that degradation but the newsletter writer thought that hers was a sad case, not that it was her fault. Quote, Her position today is not so much a discredit to the unfortunate Lady Munro herself as it is to the country which allows such a helpless, unfortunate imbecile her liberty. Imbecile was used here in the sense of someone who was weak rather than someone who had a child's intellect. Lady Munro next went to Singleton in New South Wales. After several convictions, she evaded being jailed as a habitual drunkard by doing another stint in an inebriate home. And it was a good thing she was getting sober, because her nephew was on his way down under to become Australia's new Governor-General. William Ward, the second Earl of Dudley, was the son of Georgina Moncrief, the Countess of Dudley, who Lady Munro had long claimed as her sister. In March 1908, Melbourne Truth was facetiously worried by the prospect of Lady Munro again meeting her nephew, as it claimed she had 20 years earlier. 
If she was in Melbourne, then the seat of federal government, she might prove to be a problem. Quote, It augurs ill for the Dudleys unless the incorrigible can be induced to favour Sydney with a visit. Truth argued that Lady Munro could be put in prison there under the indeterminate system. Quote, that being done, she might be the guest of His Majesty throughout the turn that Earl Dudley is with us as His Majesty's representative, to her own good and the Governor-General's comfort. In May 1908, Lady Munro was back in Sydney and at the Water Court. The sergeant reckoned it was her first appearance in that particular venue for 12 years. Despite what Truth had recommended, the magistrate did not lock her up and throw away the key, and instead gave her a small fine for the pleasure of their reunion. But there were signs she was now fading. As far as the record allows, Lady Munro didn't make the newspapers again for 18 months, until a central police court appearance in Sydney at the end of December 1909. The Singleton Argus's little report of this described her as a quote, familiar figure in Sydney years ago. It was almost another year before she was back in Sydney's water court. The papers noted she was neatly clad in a tailored tweed suit and wearing an immense toque surmounted by magpie feathers. Five months later, in April 1911, Truth said of her appearance in the same venue that she was, quote, gowned in a dainty costume of chocolate and wore an immense flowing white veil. When called, she strode smilingly and gracefully once more into the breach, or at least towards the bench. Three months later, marking another court appearance, the evening news ran the old headline, Lady Munro again. The paper had first run that headline in 1884. It had now been 33 years since Lady Munro appeared in Sydney. One third of a century of almost non-stop carousing. This time, in July 1911, she'd just finished a week on remand for medical attention. But Lady Munro was now quite well and wanted to be released. The evening news put her age at 56. More likely, she was 58. Even so, the Richmond River Herald reported, Her ladyship looked exceedingly well, was neatly gowned, and wore a toque with a short black veil. At this court appearance, Lady Munro had a sister Reed accompanying her. The magistrate would only release Lady Munro if it was into the custody of this woman, who would take her to the Anglican home at Glee Point for six months. The magistrate ordered that if Lady Munro should abscond, Sister Reed had to inform the court. Sister Reed agreed to this undertaking, but Sister Reed didn't inform the court about Lady Munro absconding, because she didn't need to. As far as the record allows, Lady Munro stayed sober and didn't make the newspapers for the rest of 1911. Same went in 1912 and in 1913. But Lady Munro was all over the newspapers in 1914, except this was the new Lady Munro. The real deal. No doubt about it. More correctly, Lady Munro Ferguson, wife of Sir Ronald Munro Ferguson, Australia's new Governor-General. While our Lady Munro had been keeping a low profile for a couple of years, there was still the potential for a comic mix-up. A columnist for Truth in Perth wrote, quote, the new Governor-General is simply Sir Ronald Ferguson and disdains the Munro and the hyphen given him by the Know-All Press. P. 
Perhaps he knows we already had a Lady Munro and takes no chances of our shoddy smart set mixing her up with his elegant spouse, Lady Munro Ferguson. God forbid. But Australian newspapers didn't need to worry. By 1914, Our Lady Munro was a tall tale on her way to being forgotten. When a dead man in England was mistakenly identified by a woman as her husband, Truth's report of this bizarre story included mention of the body in the waterhole case in Brunswick from all those years ago. Quote, No less than Lady Munro, so well known to you all, turned up actually at the time when they were holding an inquest on her. Truth pictured her in the doorway, saying to the stunned doctors, Good day, gentlemen all. I thought I'd like to be present at my own inquest. But that had been back in 1884 before moving pictures and motor cars and flying machines and governors general, before Federation united Australia and the Great War ripped the world apart. Back then in Sydney, Constable James McVeigh had been a young beat copper. In the decades since, he'd risen to the rank of superintendent. McVeigh had just retired and on the 30th of April 1916, the week of the first Anzac Day, the Sunday Times in Sydney serialised McVeigh's memoir about his nearly 40 years as a copper. As part of this story, McVeigh spent close to 1,000 words recalling his encounters with Lady Munro from their early days in Woolloomooloo to their later run-ins at Newcastle. We've already heard most of what he wrote. But in describing her, he said she, quote, must have had a marvellous constitution to last as long as she did. As for who she'd really been, McVeigh probably knew her longer and better than anyone else in Australia, and he didn't have a clue. Quote, There was a good deal of mystery attached to her, and very few knew her real history. I have often questioned her on the subject of her antecedents, but always got equivocal answers. Lady Munro might have given McVeigh a lot of laughs over the years, but in the end, the old copper concluded that hers had been a sad tale. Quote, It was a rare thing to find her perfectly sober, and even when sober, she was most erratic. I don't think she was quite compass mentis. I have heard her history, but she is dead now, poor creature. R.I.P. Dead? Poor creature? R.I.P.? Someone had tried that with Lady Munro 32 years earlier in Brunswick. Back then, the red-faced Queensland Figaro newspaper had run the headline, Is She Dead? This time, the Sunday Times was compelled to be far more emphatic. The headline on page 2 of the 14th of May issue told readers, Mrs. Munro, not dead. Lady Munro had not been dumped in a waterhole by a larrikin in Brunswick, and she wasn't going to let her old pal McVeigh drop her in a grave in Sydney either. Nor was she letting him and the Sunday Times have the last say, or get away with besmirching her good name. Back in 1891 in Adelaide, during the committal hearing of her attackers, Lady Munro said in evidence that spielers and bookmakers frequented the hotel where she was staying. She'd then taken it upon herself to issue a public apology. Now, she expected, 
demanded the same from the Sunday Times. Beneath its headline, Mrs. Munro Not Dead, the paper confessed, quote, In the course of an article published in our columns, it was stated that Mrs. Elizabeth Munro had died some time ago. This, we find, is not the fact. The old lady, in the evening of a troubled life, has found a haven and is living in comfort and in the enjoyment of the good opinion of those with whom she is associated. In her more comfortable environment, her life is irreproachable in its well-ordered method. Lady Munro's response to this might be summed up in three words. Not good enough. Two weeks later, the Sunday Times was grovelling again. The subtext could also be boiled down to just three words. Please don't sue. Quote, With reference to the paragraph in Superintendent McVeigh's reminiscences referring to Mrs Munro, whilst again regretting the publication of the article, we wish to emphasise the fact that even by innuendo, there was no reflection intended on Mrs Munro's moral character. Inquiries made by us show that in Mrs Munro's life, such reflections would be utterly groundless. Lady Munro had, it seems, found sobriety and contentment but she'd also lost none of the fire in her veins and she'd gone out, good name intact. One might even say that Lady Munro had the last laugh. So when did Lady Munro die? I don't know. Given the mystery of her real name and background, I've not been able to find a record that confirms the date of her death. Given her incredible endurance, I guess the question might be, did she die? Underestimating Lady Munro was a mug's game. In the aftermath of her public life at least, Lady Munro was recalled very infrequently and then not at all. In August 1923, nearly 100 years ago, the Australasian remembered her fondly. Quote, She would thank the bench very politely for the sentence, bow to the prosecuting constable, sweep from the court with something of the stateliness of a duchess, and, hailing the driver of a black Maria in the watchhouse yard, say, Home, John, please. The writer celebrated such a plomb compared with the oh-so-common drunken flappers of his period. Quote, That's where breeding tells. Never forget that you are a lady, even if you are drunk and how ineffectual these stylish inebriates make our poor little pretenders feel. This writer, following the tradition established by the Bulletin 40 years earlier, was even moved to write poetry about what Australia had lost when it lost the likes of Lady Munro. They always remember their blood and their birth and refrain from vulgar cursing when hauled to the court on the usual charge as a drunken disorderly person. When the watchhouse keeper needs half an hour, the previous convictions to mention, it takes a lady to bluff it through with a savour of condescension. While some low-grade commoner roars and rants till they're almost forced to gag her, the old nobility carries it off with an inarticulate stagger. Then weave me in a wreath of barley and hops from the brow of those old-time drinkers and sing me a song with a hiccup or two in praise of the dear deep sinkers. If tanked or tangled, they'd never descend to customs saucy or shady, but always manage to carry their booze in the style that becomes a lady. 
I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. I'll be back with another episode as soon as I can. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.